you never know what is a good idea and what is a bad idea. It may look bad at the beginning, turns out to be great. It might look great at the beginning and then turns out to be really bad. So what you really want to do is shape your idea and then change it and change it and change it because you made your most fundamental hypothesis, the risks, explicit. That's how innovation and entrepreneurship works today, the you know, post-business plan era. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting-edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders, rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Valley podcast. As a listener of Superhumans at Work, thank you so much for tuning in, and I'm excited to announce an interesting innovation that we'll be having moving forward. See, Now that we record these episodes, we actually have a live audience that gets to tune in and listen over my shoulder and the guest's shoulders while we record these podcast episodes. At the end of our interview, we always get a chance to bring some of these attendees to listen in, ask questions, and be a part of the show as well. You'll get to hear some of these questions towards the end of the episodes, so notice that you'll still be getting these amazing conversations about 20 to 30 minutes with me and the guests, and at the end, you'll have some additional content from the questions of our live audience members. Now, if you'd want to be a part of the live audience, know that this is something that is reserved for our all-access members of Mindvalley. So to learn more on how you can become an all-access member, go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman, where you get access to all the learnings from Mindvalley and all of these extra bonuses as well. It's one of the best education systems you could participate in to live a truly extraordinary life. So definitely go check it out at mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman, that's S. U-P-E-R-H-U-M-A-N. Thank you so much for tuning in, and let's get started with this episode. Hi, everybody. This is Jason Mark Campbell. Welcome back to Superhumans at Work. I have an extraordinary guest with me today who is a business theorist, a speaker, author, consultant, entrepreneur. The man is someone that I've known for over 12, maybe even 15 years, back when he was still finishing his doctorate's degree, writing a thesis on what is known as the business model ontology. Today, he is a man that has written several books, including the Business Model Canvas, Value Proposition Canvas, Business Portfolio Map. These are all models that he has popularized. He's now just released a new book called The Invincible Company. We're going to talk about a few of his concepts because if we would talk about every concept he's brought forward, we would be having conversation for hours. What I want to do is focus on the things that I find are the most influential for anybody who's trying to make sense of whatever business that they are in to see where do you actually put in the pieces and make things make sense. And guess what? in one page? Can it be done? How do you do it? We're going to go deeper into this. Now, Alex Osterwalter is known as the number four top 50 management thinker worldwide. He has spoken at companies around the world. He has been chaired at the prestigious Drucker Forum Premier Business Annual Management Conference. He's a popular keynote speaker at Fortune 500 companies, and his work has been so influential in all industries, including startup industries. And that's such a pleasure to have him here sharing his insights with us. Alex, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, like I mentioned, I'm a big fan of yours, so I'm going to be a little shy on this podcast. I need to talk about the origin story here, right? So you were a student or you were finishing your doctorate and you started putting together this idea of a business model canvas. And I'd love for you to kind of bring us back into what was the reason that you were so inspired of doing this canvas and what was the problem you were trying to solve when you started working on that? 
So back in the year 2000, I started as a doctoral student with my now co-author, long-term friend, Yves Pigneur, and he was looking for somebody who could describe in a more rigid way, more structured way, what is a business model? And at that time, we were doing it for startups. And the idea was that if we can you know, create some type of ontology, so very structured, <laughs> formulaic way to describe business models, we can build software on that. So that was the beginning. So the idea came really from Eve. And then I worked on that, and we came up with the business model ontology. And the thing that came out of it and really spread around the world is the business model canvas, so our first tool. And it started with this idea, you know, can we actually create something that allows us to describe business models? for startups or for existing companies. But we did start out with, you know, that was back then when the whole e-commerce world was exploding. And that was fun. It was a fun ride. And it was really interesting to see how so many people, literally millions around the world started using it. And the surprise was, of course, well, it wasn't just startups. It was startups and very senior leaders from very large organizations that found this very simple tool interesting. And we did some research to understand why, but that was fascinating to see. So you can't predict that something will take off and be used by millions of people. So that was, that was fun to watch. Oh, it was incredible. I mean, to be honest, I used your business model canvas, I think it was two weeks ago when I was just sitting with a friend and sometimes a friend will come up with some ideas. He was working on a PR agency and then he's like, we should do some partnering. You're a great salesperson. Maybe we could work something out. And I just said like, before even considering an idea, I used the business model canvas being like, hold up a minute. Let's see if this makes sense. And then we, I just map it out, these nine beautiful squares. And I'm like, all right, so what are we creating? What's the activity that actually provides value? What resources do you have? And as soon as we start mapping it out and really targeting what are the clients, and if this is confusing you right now, we're going to break this down. It immediately makes me understand if this is a valuable idea or not. And so I would want to dig further here before we itemize what are the pieces of this canvas that people can use is, again, once a company starts using this, What's the magic that you see happen once they have that canvas in front of them? Let's be honest, you know, it's not a tool alone that's going to create the miracle of your success. It's several tools and it's many other variables like the process you put in place, how you test these ideas, your leadership skills. So the business model canvas is one tool and we started with it with one particular goal to help people map out their business model, take the idea from in their head and make it a lot more explicit, shape it by defining the nine fundamental blocks of every single business. And the magic is actually the same for all of the tools we created from back then to our latest book, The Invincible Company. It creates a shared visual language that takes the ideas out of your head and puts it on paper. Or if you're a group, a team, it actually forces you to not just talk and stay kind of in the fuzzy where it's not clear if everybody's aligned, but to make it explicit. Because as soon as you map it out, the conversations will be different. Oh, well, that sticky note there, that customer, that's not a customer segment of ours. So visualizing something with a simple, structured, and practical language makes an incredible difference. Something so simple as a shared language (laughs) and this tool can be so powerful. So that's why we started creating more tools and we put a lot of energy in making them very, very, very simple and practical and get them to work. So again, it's not one tool, it's several tools, but they all have the same magic. It's this magic of a shared language that takes abstract things and makes them explicit. So you will agree on them as a team and you will be able to change and shape them. It's a little bit like, a, you know, call it an artifact, like a, like a product prototype. You're actually making a business prototype. 
So it's not just about, you know, what's the product? What's the service? No, it's a business prototype with all the aspects that go with it. And when you make things concrete, you can discuss them a lot better. If you're in the abstract, people think they align, but actually they often are misaligned and they find out a lot later. So using visual tools is absolutely magic. And that's something I learned from a lot of other thinkers and we brought it into the business small space and then other spaces later on. I love it. And this is what I love the most about every tool you publish is you make it so beautiful, so simple. They're all like very colorful. Like I've seen how you make all the canvases and they make things click instantly. You kind of look at it and it, it jumps to your eyes in its simplicity. And I wanted to kind of compare that because before we had the canvas, like what did we have? Like the business plan, like a long page document. What was that world like before? Yeah. So, and then that's the reason why Eve started this idea. So he, you know, is a business school professor, in the computer science department or information systems science department. And then you had people coming from the technical side and showing their startup ideas. And they would always write this business plan with several pages. And he thought, well, this just can't work, right? Already, that's one idea. Maybe there's a range of you know, revenue projections and so on. So he thought, what if we could work more like an architect? And architects, they make very quick prototypes. They make very quick study models and they throw a lot of them away until they actually find something that works. So that was the initial idea. Can we, you know, play around with these things? And I don't remember what the question was, but I'm so fascinated by this idea of, of prototyping ideas that that can really uh, get you to the next level. What was the question again? <laughs> the question was, what was the world before the canvas? And you just answered it perfectly. So I think your back subconscious just goes right to the right answer. <laughs> but we got to go back to the business plan because... In startups, I think business plans are not so common anymore, which is great because there's these best practices that are used. But in established companies, unfortunately, companies still ask for business plans for new ideas. And that's crazy because I'd say, actually, business plans maximize your risk of failure. Because what's going to happen? You're going to describe this idea in a business plan and in spreadsheets. And because you spend so much time, you know, thinking through and describing it, it's going to look amazing. But it's just a fantasy that you described in detail. So Steve Blank would say, well, it's like, you know, creative writing. And what you really want to do is believe that you're not going to get it right immediately. So you prototype it and you test it. And that's a very different approach. It's not about not shaping your idea. In a business plan, you shape your idea, but you overthink it and you refine it too early. You're not going to throw away a 30-page document. You're going to get funding and the funders are going to ask you to execute your idea. That's the worst thing you can do because you're going to execute a fantasy without testing any single assumption. So now with a business small canvas, and that's just the tool to make it explicit, you want to combine it with this customer development lean startup approach that was started by Steve Blank. And then you start to test it and change it. That's the magic. When you bring these tools together with the right processes and you do the first and hardest thing, you say, I don't know if this is going to work. You're an entrepreneur or an intrapreneur and you really believe your vision is in the right direction, but you still know you're not going to get it immediately right. So you have to change how you're going to turn that vision into reality. And that's where these visual tools like the Business Small Canvas can help you a lot because you're not going to overthink it. You could, but because it's so rough, you're going to go out and test it and you can change it all the time. So that's you know the whole movement that started in particular when I got to know Steve Blank and we put our tools together and we pushed that and then Eric Reese made it very popular because 
business plans shouldn't be around in innovation. They're good execution tools, but they're really bad tools for innovation and entrepreneurship. So we need to kill them because, again, it maximizes the risk of failure because you're going to invest in an idea and execute it while you shouldn't. And funny enough, even in the startup world where it mixes with the corporate world, that still exists. Anybody heard of Quibi? You remember Quibi? They just yeah, went bankrupt because they raised a lot of money and executed an idea. That case, you know, some people would say, well, that was a stupid idea and you could see it. You know what? You never know what is a good idea and what is a bad idea. It may look bad at the beginning, turns out to be great. It might look great at the beginning and then turns out to be really bad. So what you really want to do is shape your idea and then change it and change it and change it because you made your most fundamental hypothesis, the risks, explicit. That's how innovation and entrepreneurship works today, the you know, post-business plan era. Beautiful. It's funny that you mentioned Steve Blank. He was on the show a little earlier. And for those who haven't seen his episode, he does credit Alex's work in that episode as well as a fundamental piece for the lean startup methodology, one of the powerful tools to use there. And I wanted to break it down. Now, I know during a very quick interview, it's hard to break down all of the business model canvas, but maybe give us a bit of the fundamentals. Because one thing to know is for everybody that's tuning in, we will put links to Strategizer, which is Alex's company, where you can see what the canvas looks like. And there are a lot of tools that are available there for you to go deeper with the tool. But for the benefit of people that are tuning in, they're being exposed to this. Can you break us the two sides and the center with value in a very 30,000 foot view? Because I know we yeah. could go deep into this. Look, I would keep it extremely simple. Just tell people, go Google business small canvas. You'll find it and you'll see what the nine building blocks is. But the thing I want you to keep in mind the business model is the story of your business. So it's not the individual pieces. So in the business model canvas, you will find things like channels or key activities. You need all of those fundamental blocks. But what is most important is you ask yourself, how do I combine those building blocks, those elements into a powerful story? And some business models are better than others. So it's not just about the channels. It's about how do you use channels differently for a certain value proposition to create recurring revenues? It's those kind of stories where you look at everything together. So when you have Lego blocks, you know, you can make a pretty ugly building. You just kind of play around with the blocks. And that's what I call in the business small canvas world, the checklist approach. You didn't really think about the story, about how the whole thing will look. You just thought about the individual blocks. The best thing is, you know, think of a business small like a house. You're going to design the windows, the roof, and the whole thing together needs to make sense. And probably even better to think of it like an airplane because that thing needs to fly. It shouldn't just look good. It actually needs to work. So in an abstract way, that's how I would describe the business model, business model canvas. It's broken down into nine building blocks. You can just go and Google that. But there's one thing I'd want to add to that. The business model canvas is probably we could say just a, a better and more modern version of the business plan if you do not combine it with testing, if you do not combine it with other tools where you zoom into the value proposition canvas, look at that a little bit more specifically. Or if you're in a larger company, you look at your portfolio of business models. So one tool is not going to do it. It's as if you'd say a surgeon is going to you know, conduct heart surgery with a Swiss army knife, a tool that does everything. I never said the business small canvas does everything. You need to be an innovation entrepreneurship surgeon where you bring the right tools together and that will actually allow you also to get better at doing this. First time you do it, you're going to fail. That's okay. You get up again. The best entrepreneurs 
don't just wake up one day and then they, you know, play like Roger Federer, <laughs> world's best tennis player. You actually get better at this over time. So I think there's this misconception, oh, one tool is going to work. I'm going to be successful. No, it's different tools, learning how to use them and don't get disappointed when it doesn't work the first time. I don't know a lot of entrepreneurs who succeeded the first time. When they're on the cover of the magazine, the press makes them look like they were geniuses that got it right. But the reality is they've used these tools intuitively or explicitly and learned over a long time how to get it right. Brilliant, Alex. And that's a refreshing insight to make sure that people don't think this is the one stop for everything, which kind of brings me to your latest book, actually, which is The Invincible Company. Now, you've done some work on studying some of the biggest companies and how they've been able to create some massive success, especially in this day and age to stay competitive and disrupt entire industries. Can you tell us more about some of the trends you've noticed in these innovative companies? So there's three things that turn you into an invincible company. And that's when you're established, right? Because first, you actually need to find a business model. So we'll get back to the kind of startup phase. But once you are a company, you have some businesses working medium size or very big, you need to keep three things in mind. You need to constantly reinvent yourself because it's very easy to go out of business. Even if you've been hugely successful the last three years, the world can change through disruption very quickly. Second one is don't just compete on products, services, and price compete on superior business models, better stories. And the third one is don't define yourself in an industry as this is what we do. Banking, you know, insurance, pharmaceuticals, the best companies, they transcend industry boundaries. Think Tesla. It's not a car company. Software and data. It's not just software and data because they're actually becoming a green energy company, right? So they transcend industry boundaries So they're very different from the traditional car companies who don't even know how to compete against something like Tesla. So those are the three characteristics that turn you into an invincible company. Now, one of the things that we've seen over the last decade is people have a hard time thinking beyond products and services and price. When they innovate, they come up with new products, new technologies, and that's great, but that's not enough. The best companies today they create superior business models. So we created an entire library of business model patterns that even startups can use. You might have a great technology in mind, great product, great service, market opportunity. Think of how you can design a better business model because that's going to give you a competitive advantage. And at the same time, once you got that business model, you need to reinvent yourself all the time. So now I don't know if I lost you guys. (laughs) I believe he will be back. So in the meantime, let's do what we always do, Alex, which is we like to bring in the most voted questions and have the person ask you live. So I'm going to ask for everyone who is live with us right now, go in the Q&A box and start voting the questions that you find the most interesting so we can invite our students to come in and interact with Alex in real time. And I'm seeing a few comments in the chat already where I'm reading how mind-blowing they're finding all the insights that you're sharing with us. So hi, Gaurav. Welcome. Did I say your name right? Yeah, you pronounced it right. For an Indian name, it's a bit tough. So (laughs) uh, this is quite close. (laughs) Awesome. Welcome. Thank you for joining us live. I had two questions, one of which I have typed actually. And the question was very specific because I also posted this question a few weeks back on a chat with Vishen because he referred to the business model canvas in a particular reference to startups. The question I had was that, can these models be applied to existing companies where 
the businesses are already mid-sized and do they go on to beyond startups to establish companies as well? That's question number one. And maybe I can ask the second question later. Yeah, absolutely. Look, Strategizer as a company, we just work with large and established organizations. You know, take Colgate, take Bayer. So the tools we use, we apply them in that context. So if you're an existing business, well, you have a business model, right? And, you know, a lot of companies have product-based business models with transactional revenues. So the question is, could we transform our business model to create something different with recurring revenues, something that's more scalable? So absolutely, you want to constantly ask yourself, can I improve the business model that I already have? And actually, this is something that most managers that manage multi-billion dollar units actually are not very good at because you know, we kind of assume that, oh, that's the business, how it was for the last, you know, two years, five years, 10 years, decades for certain industries. And then we only realize it could be different once we get disrupted. So I think it's right now life-threatening for companies that don't consider reinventing their business model. So it's not just, you know, if we talk established companies, it's not just about creating new startup-like things that are very different. It's also about transforming the business models you have. And in our newest book, The Invincible Company, we call those business model shifts. So we have an entire library on different kinds of business model shifts. One of the most obvious and most well-known is moving from products to recurring services, right? Or from transactional revenues towards recurring revenues. But then there's also other ones which are interesting. Moving from single-use resources to using the same resources for many different things. Guess what Amazon did? That's exactly what they did. They used their IT infrastructure to create the most competitive cloud service on the planet. But there's companies that have done the same thing in completely different industries. So we talk about those patterns in the world of established companies. I think there's an enormous potential. The thing I would add is we kind of glorify the startup world as they're going to you know, create all the new value, they're going to do all the disruption. I think we'll see the best when we have both worlds playing you know, against each other. Today, I think the startups are often better funded <laughs> and just faster and more creative when it comes to business malls. And that's why they can disrupt established players. But we're now seeing the established players that get their act together, you know, watching the companies, the clients we work with, like Colgate, really starting to ask themselves, hey, what if we combined the brand we have, the assets we have to do really cool new things? That is going to be a game changer. And I think it's interesting, not because you know I'm against startups, I love startups, but think of it. Established companies have so many assets that they can put to use to create value for customers and for society. It would be a pity if they weren't among the disruptors. And one of my favorite examples today, to not always mention Amazon, is Pingan, the Chinese you know, traditional insurance and banking conglomerate that started to create completely new business models because they transcended industry boundaries and because they said, if we don't do anything, we're going to get disrupted. So they became a disruptor and they grew to one of the largest companies in the world. So it can be done. The thing is, you know, it's, it's a bit harder than actually in a startup to a certain extent. But once you figured it out, use your assets. It's amazing. And that really depends on the leadership committing. So what we don't see today is senior leadership committing to innovation. Innovation should not happen in a garage, in an established company, because then it's dead. 
the ideas can come bottom up, but the ability to create the system is top down. So what you need is top down and bottom up, and you're going to get an amazing value for customers and hopefully for society and, of course, for the business itself. And that's what I'm excited about working with established companies. We can really create a lot of value in the world. Value creation does not just come from the startup world, a world that I love, but I think actually the impact can be bigger once the large players get their act together. And the motivations are just as positive, right? So sometimes actually startups have more evil motivations than the established players. So I don't think it's a good or bad thing. It's, you know, good organizations or bad organizations. Actually, my second question was a reflection on the second point which you had made in, in respect to the invincible company. You talked about businesses transcending industry boundaries. And I, having worked for a old economy company, which is a big behemoth in its own space, I see this question coming again and again. A lot of ideas will get shot down with the question of saying, are we sticking to our core business? And while that question has been the power of yesterday, it becomes the baggage today in times and when you're trying to shift what has been your experience? What has worked? And I completely agree. Actually, partly answered by saying that it has to be top down and bottoms up. But any any ideas on that? Very good question. Very good comment. Now, what I would add is, it's actually not bad to improve your existing business models, right? So when I talk to senior leaders, I say, look, there's two worlds to roughly distinguish. There is exploit and improve, and there's explore and discover. And you need to work on both fronts. So there are three different types of innovation. One is efficiency innovation and sustaining innovation, mainly improving what you have. And that's good. We need to do that. And we can do that within the existing business units. But what you also need today in particular is exploration where you work on breakthrough business models. Some people like to call this H1, H2, H3, you know, from the McKinsey model, the Horizon model. It doesn't matter. But you need to be aware that you need to have a portfolio that covers all three. And that has to come from the senior leadership, even more probably from the board, to ask those questions, hey, if we're just improving our existing business model, we're just making that more efficient, we might actually more efficiently die when the world changes and we get disrupted. So I like to say efficiency innovation is great, but if that's all you do, you're going to more efficiently die. So we need to look at that outside and we need to create a space to do that. And that needs to be a space that is separated from the core business units, but not too separated because then what happens, they're not going to be able to benefit from the assets and from you know, anything, everything the company has. So that's a very delicate game. And again, back to Ping An, that's what they did really well. The founder, Peter Ma, hired Jessica Tan, who became co-CEO, responsible to invent the future. And the mandate was also to play in five arenas, to use you know, Rita McGrath's terms, not in an industry, because they said banking finance, dead, the way it was so far. So they created five arenas around mobility, et cetera, and health, and they played in those five arenas. So there was a very clear mandate from the board to do that, and power in the form of you know, chief entrepreneur Jessica Tan, co-CEO, to actually do that. So and the challenge today in many organizations is that innovation has no power, so of course they're not going to be able to invent the future. Because the power is often with the CEO, chief execution, if we want, officer, and the business units. And of course, if you're running a business unit, what's your interest? To improve the PL. You have no interest to explore a new PL 
because that's not your mandate. You'll get fired, actually, if you waste money. So we need to create a separate space that's integrated enough that it doesn't get shut down. And if you do that, magic will happen. And we're seeing it all the time. And in that space also, you have completely different processes and culture to constantly test and change your ideas. And many, many ideas will fail. And that's okay if we keep it cheap. So this art is what we try to describe in the Invincible Company because it can be done. And that's really important to understand that it's not magic anymore. It's a question of commitment. If leadership commits, it can be done. I can predict if a company can do it or not just by assessing. So we have this assessment framework where we look at innovation, culture, readiness. You can clearly see. And it starts with the amount of time that the senior leadership spends with innovation. They don't spend 50% of their time with innovation. Not going to happen. If you're working in innovation, your leadership doesn't spend 50% of their time, maybe 30%. You should leave. You should change your job because you're not going to get anywhere. Thank you, Alex. And thank, thank you, Gaurav. That was really powerful questions that you asked. Thank you for being so engaged. And Alex, I'm going to bring in our next student. His name is San Sundar. I think the question is going to be very valuable because it speaks about what is happening in this time around the world. So I don't see him coming on. Let's answer the question. I can see it in yeah, the perfect. Uh, you know, if there's a sudden unexpected change in complete environment, like with mm-hmm. COVID, you know, how significantly should you change your business model canvas? So, well, that depends. <laughs> if you're Netflix, you don't need to change at all. You actually need to change your operational capabilities to cope with all of the growth. Same for Amazon. So that is really depends. But I would frame it in a different way. So companies that were already very good at exploring while executing and scaling were much more prepared for COVID or any kind of disruption. Because you can't start to change easily overnight when you don't have the ability to explore. So what you really want to do, and that's not just for large companies, it's very important for small companies as well, you need to build the capability to explore and do that while you're successful. That's the key word here, while you're successful. A lot of people call this the ambidextrous organization or the dual organization, right? But you need to do that before disruption hits. So what we can see is that companies that were already good at exploration, they were ready for COVID-19 to a certain extent. You can't be ready for a black swan like this, but they were much faster at adapting. And it's not just a question of business model canvas and adapting the business model. It's the ability to very quickly take an idea, test it, change it, and adapt it until it works. Because every idea at the beginning is probably going to fail. The more, the more breakthrough it is, the more likely it is going to fail. It's 90 to 95%. So what you actually need to be able to do very quickly, and that's what most companies that are focused on execution can't do, is take an idea, test it, change the business model canvas maybe a hundred times until you find what's going to work. And that's an exploration capability as opposed to an execution capability. You need both, but they're very different and they require different skills, different culture. So if you don't cultivate that before disruption hits, you're going to probably not make it. And there are multiple examples, you know, Kodak being one, <laughs> Fujifilm being a positive one where they actually did make it. But most companies, you know, that wait for a crisis, they usually go under. So what you really want to do is create those exploration capabilities today. And I'm always amazed when innovation teams, 
you know, like the business model innovation department of a multinational with billions of dollars of revenue is five people. Say, well, okay, great. What if your marketing and sales department was five people? You think you'd be as good at execution? No, of course not. So we need to actually more heavily invest in that exploration capability to invent the future. And then you don't care about disruption because you're ready for it. Disruption gets us scared because we're not prepared for it. But today we know exactly what to do to be prepared for these kinds of situations. Again, you know, I don't want to play down COVID-19. It's a terrible thing, had a huge impact, but some companies were much better equipped to deal with this than others. And sometimes, you know, take Airbnb. They had to take drastic measures, but at the same time, they didn't kill their exploration capabilities. They had to shrink. There's no other way they could do it. They did it in a very human way, but at the same time, because they were good at exploration, you know, they could already prepare for this next phase. Any other company in the travel industry would probably not make it, but Airbnb did because they're very good at exploring while executing. Very, very, you know, say impressive organization. And Alex, I wanted to ask you regarding this question beyond Airbnb, is there any other example of company that you have worked with that has changed completely their business model during COVID and that was really successful at doing it? So, no, I don't have examples where we had to do something urgently. Again, we work with a lot of large established companies. And luckily, I'd say I was in the airline. I wasn't working with the airline industry back then. I don't know how you could get out of that. You probably could. But what we did see is what I can talk about is how aggressively a lot of our clients invested in exploration and innovation during COVID. So when it hit, we actually thought at Strategizer, oops, we better be careful. And we were ready, you know, for zero revenues. But turns out it was quite the contrary. Because we're really good at doing things remotely and because we're so focused on innovation, in particular, a lot of pharma companies, we have actually three of the top six pharma companies we work with, they invested heavily in exploration, their teams, you know, adapting. And the reason why this is very important, take Colgate as a different example, is because guess what happened? You know, the world got a lot more prepared to change their behavior. So it's actually a huge opportunity. So not just startups, you know, or let's take Zoom, which you can't call a startup anymore, that were really in this space and benefited from it, but even established players. You know, if you're in pharma or health in the health sector, great. You know, the whole world changed and all of a sudden now people are open to telemedicine. They'll never go back to a waiting room at a doctor's office just for a five-minute consultation. So the world changed in a way that creates huge opportunities. So I was very glad to see that the managements we work with were smart enough not to shut down, but actually to more aggressively invest. And that is, I think, the right behavior, which we don't always see enough, but you know, it really shows that those companies that did this, you know, there's some McKinsey reports out there that show those companies that invest in innovation during a downturn will come out a lot stronger. But unfortunately, I can't give you the exact kind of cases and examples, because otherwise probably I'd have to go to jail or at least I'd have a lawsuit on, the, on my back. But it's you know, very positive to see that companies did not shut down innovation and leave the whole field to startups, but that they actually continued to invest heavily. That's really insightful. And I'm seeing, Sundar, you joined us live. So thank you for asking this question, which 
brought a lot of perspective. And I'm reading a comment also from Janet, who is asking, can you go back again to the three types of innovation that you mentioned? Was it efficiency, exploration, and execution? So this is not something we invented. This is something that a lot of people talked about. I like the approach from late Craig Christensen. So he talks about efficiency innovation. I slightly tweak the terms a bit. Efficiency innovation is about improving the business model that you have and the operational processes. Then there is sustaining innovation. That's maybe expanding the product line, new value propositions, you know, digital transformation, new channels, but it doesn't fundamentally change your business model or the arena you're playing in. But then we have the third type, which is breakthrough innovation, which is playing in a completely different field, one that you don't know. So if you're a food company, for example, that sells food through retailers, and all of a sudden you start thinking about a snack box or a lunch box for kids, you're in a different business model, probably, right? Because you might not sell them through a retail. You might not have all the components of that lunchbox. So you're starting to move out of the arena you're in. Take Amazon Web Services. You have a book retailer that becomes the biggest infrastructure player in B2B on the planet. That's a pretty breakthrough innovation. But that's exactly what we're going to see more of when companies say, hey, it's okay. We're going to play in all three types of innovation. And, you know, sometimes all you need is efficiency innovation, but at least you need to be able to or aware of how to do exploration. So I'm not saying you have to do it. It needs to be a strategic choice. Today, most leaderships are not aware and they're not making a choice. It's just the default that they do efficiency innovation because they work on blockchain and AI and they think because they're using crazy technologies, they're inventing the future. But you know what? If you're making the queues shorter and you're an airline, with, you know, use AI or blockchain to make the queues shorter. Well, that didn't help very much because the airline industry went down the drain. So technology sophistication is not enough. You need to be aware. Are you creating new value for new customer segments in new ways and new value for your organization? That's why we need to be aware of the three types of innovation. And that's why we talk about the portfolio approach a lot. I love this, Alex. I really do. And one question that comes to mind is, have you noticed anything different in teams that are ready to explore? Is there something in their mindset? Oof, you bet, right? So look, world-class managers and world-class innovators and entrepreneurs are a different breed. And it's not a value judgment. They're just very different. And you need a different skill set. And I remember when we worked on the book and we talked a little bit about the profile of the explorers, and I shared this with Steve Blank, who had created seven companies. He said, well, one of the things, you know, besides the curiosity, et cetera, is they're just relentless. They don't give up. Right? They get up again and again and again. So I think the key skill of an innovator or entrepreneur is the ability to be humiliated 100,000 times, but don't care. You just move on. Everybody would tell you, this is stupid. This doesn't work. And actually, this stuff doesn't work until it works, right? And that is the key skill to overcome the obstacles again and again and again. Obstacles which are, oh, that's not working, this value proposition or operational until you figure it out. The second thing I would say, best entrepreneurs and innovators I know, they're amazing pattern recognizers. They can see patterns where others can't. It's not that they, they see something that isn't there. They just see it differently. <laughs> they see the patterns. That's extraordinary. And in the corporate innovation world, I would add a third component. 
those that are really successful, who really succeed, they're very good at creating internal allies. They're not dogmatic about, oh, you need to use this canvas, this tool, and like this. They don't talk methodology. They're very pragmatic. They work with the COO, the CTO, the CEO, and understand their motivations. They understand how the budgets work. They understand you know, the constraints of the different business units, and they use that to their advantage. So the evangelists are usually those that fail, those that are very pragmatic. I'm not saying political, but pragmatic. They usually succeed. As the last thing I would like to add, <laughs> you know, innovators, they like to call themselves pirates or rebels. In a company, if you call yourself a pirate or rebel, you're stupid because you're basically saying, well, I'm a pirate or rebel. What do we do historically with pirates and rebels? We kill them. So, and that's exactly what the antibodies of the established company does. Antibodies kill everything that looks differently or new. So you actually want to be seen as an ally who helps invent the future. So we need to stop calling innovators pirates, maybe like my colleague pirates in the Navy who are at the service of the crown. That's okay. But you know, you're not a rebel. You're actually a partner that is building the future. And organizations that get to Amazon, they give innovation power. And they don't call them pirates or rebels. They see them as equal partners, sometimes almost more important because they invent the future. And I think that's crucial that, you know, that's an ability for corporate innovators to not see yourself as, hey, I'm special, I'm innovating, you know, you're doing the boring stuff. No, those boring things are actually paying your salary. And that's the advantage of a corporate innovator. You don't have the same risk profile as a startup entrepreneur. So when you're in a company, be respectful of those millions or billions of dollars that are actually financing your, you know, playing around to a certain extent. So I think that, you know, I get very excited about that because I do believe we need more of a partnership and less of, oh, innovation is this crazy thing, it's creative genius and pirates. No, it's, you know, it's going to be a function just like sales or marketing. And once we have that, that's when a company really is good at breakthrough innovation. When it's not pirates, it's not rule breakers, but it's part of the system, as boring as finance, right? And that's, that's the moment I'm waiting for when, you know, you choose either accounting or innovation. But then, you know, we'll see a different kind of innovator maybe choosing this calling. Thank you, Alex. And I'll recap this real quick before I give it up to Sundar for one more question that he would like to ask you live. So we talked about three main characteristics of leaders and innovators, which are being willing to be humiliated in front of failure and still keep going as the one quality, the first one. Yeah. The second, being able to recognize patterns. This is something that creates innovation. And the third one, which I really loved, and it reminds me of the philosophy of another great author that we have at Mind Valley, Keith Ferrazio, speaks about the principle of co-elevation. And Alex touched about this, the importance of creating alliances, of being able to work across departments. And the last point was the most powerful for me today. I love this distinction that you made about the importance of not being so attached to your identity as a rebel, but rather be yeah. willing to create 
allies inside of your organization if you want to push forward innovation. And that individual identity being of a rebel and pirate being less important than you rallying a team together towards a vision. And thank you for bringing also that perspective on corporate innovation and the gratitude of having the chance of innovating without taking the risks of entrepreneurship. It was very insightful information for our students. Sundar, thank you for patiently waiting. Go ahead and ask your question. Hi, Alex. You talked about QB, right? At the start. Uh, yeah, yeah, quick yeah, bites, yeah. yeah. Without COVID and Disney Plus moving at the same time. So right now, QB would have been somewhat in a better position than it is right now, right? So if you find a company in that position, when should they take uh, intervention or um, any action to change their path? So one thing I didn't mention before, actually. So when I said, you know, as an entrepreneur, you need to constantly get up and don't give up. Actually, as a corporation or as a venture fund, your most important ability is to kill ideas that shouldn't go on, right? So that is actually something that's very important. So when people say never give up, that's not the right approach. When there's nothing there, you need to stop, right? So it's this fine line between I'm constantly going, you know, and now look, I've only been humiliated. I didn't get anything right. And that's okay. There was nothing there. It's not because you're stupid. It's because you explore an idea that might've been too early, et cetera. Now to the question, I wouldn't, in the case of Quibi, I wouldn't blame COVID-19. What I would blame is they had too much money. What happens when you have too much money? You execute an idea that shouldn't be executed because you don't explore. You don't test a single assumption. So it's not COVID that killed them, might have contributed to killing them faster. What killed them was premature scaling. Actually, it's aggressively, you know, 1.7 billion is a lot of money. And some venture capitalists, like Vinod Koshla famously said this, that more money is actually going to decrease the likelihood of success. Because the more money you have, the more you're going to execute. And that's where, you know, I love Silicon Valley, but look at how many stupid ideas have been executed in Silicon Valley. And that's always, almost always when there's too much money. So too much money in the startup context and in the corporate context will lead you to not test and explore, but to execute. I can tell you, I remember you know, when Quibi, when I saw the funding they got, I thought, hey, this is a good test for the whole lean startup approach. You know, can you actually do it without testing? And bam, you know, I didn't know this would happen. I, I thought it would, was going to happen. And the proof is there. And there's multiple examples like that. So now, how do we actually know when to move on and invest more or to kill? It's something that venture capitalists actually have gotten pretty good at. And we have something, you can Google it and get it online for free. It's called the Innovation Project Scorecard from Strategizer. And what you'll see is we invest in projects and corporations or kill them not based on the idea. We kill or invest based on, and maybe we want to use shelf the ideas. Kill sounds so aggressive, so so horrible. But we shelf the ideas, retire them if there's not enough evidence. And there are three, four risk categories and there are four types of evidence that you need to find. One is for desirability. Do customers actually want it? One is for feasibility. Can I actually pull it off, build it, scale, you know, the resources, the activities, I get the patents, et cetera. Viability, can I make more money from it than I sell? 
And the last one, adaptability, you know, is this the right time and is it the right environment, regulatory, et cetera. So once you've identified those four risks, and we call that hypothesis, desirability hypothesis, viability hypothesis, you need to bring evidence to the table to convince me that your, like a scientist, right? Your desirability hypothesis, oh, actually turns out to be true. Customers care about that particular job pain or gain or that problem. Customers are willing to pay 20 bucks for that service. If you give me a spreadsheet and the numbers look great, I say, I don't care. What's the evidence? And then people say, well, but I have to build it first. No, you do not have to build things to test them. That's why we created a book called Testing Business Ideas. So you can produce evidence for those four risk hypothesis categories and then come up with evidence. So in a first sprint, you're probably just going to look at desirability, some shape of viability. In a second sprint, maybe, you know, three to six months, first one, probably one to three months. Second sprint, you start to look more at feasibility, you get stronger evidence also around desirability, some viability, and you constantly invest more, the more evidence you have. And if the team can't produce evidence, very simple, you kill it. And that's what venture capitalists have been doing for a long time. They don't officially kill it. They just don't do follow-up investment. Now, now that there's a lot of money around, it actually happens, unfortunately. <laughs> People think they're going to miss out. So with that project scorecard, you can really start to do you know, metered funding. We describe this in the Invincible Company. The best companies in the world, they invest in hundreds of projects, small amounts of money. So they lower the barrier. They say yes to almost everything. But then after three months, they say no to 50 to 70% of the projects. So the kill rate is over 50%. And that's good. And they tell the teams, that's okay. You can come back, do it again. Because maybe it doesn't cost money. It's just the time. Maybe it's 10,000 bucks. So that's the thing. You say yes at the beginning, but then after three months, there's no evidence. You say no immediately. And there are too many zombie projects today still in most corporations. So this whole idea of an innovation funnel where you invest in many ideas is important. And in corporations, we don't have the data. In the startup world, we do. So it turns out one out of 250 early stage venture funded firms have a breakthrough success. Only one out of 250 okay, funded companies. So that means, and when they say breakthrough success, that's where the data ends. It's 50x return on capital or more. That's probably not even a billion dollar revenue company. So probably the ratio is maybe one to 2,500 to create a billion dollar revenue company, not a unicorn that's just value, you know, the paper value, but revenue. So these numbers is something we know from the venture world, and we now need to apply it in the corporate world as well. And even in the venture world, I think we're starting to forget that sometimes because there's too much money. So we're not as good anymore at killing ideas or retiring ideas. And that's the challenge in an established company. Because, you know, nobody wants to fail in an established company. You get fired. You should get, if you're, you know, you're screwing up a warehouse or the supply chain, you should get fired. But if you're exploring, you should be rewarded because you're helping the company in the future. So that's why we need these two cultures, right? Exploit, explore. Completely different attitude towards failure. Failure is not the goal, but it's a necessary side, you know, product. 
So Jeb Bezos likes to say, you know, that failure and, and invention are inseparable twins. You can't get breakthrough innovation without a lot of failure. You could acquire them, but that's getting more and more expensive. So setting up these systems is now pretty clear. We need the leadership commitment to do it. That's all that's missing. I think today in innovation, that's the last frontier. How do we get senior leaders and boards? Which I think the boards are the, even more the challenge in the stock market, maybe. Once we get that, you know, innovation is really going to take off. and We're going to see a lot of great stuff happening. For those of you who are listening to the recording, the one resource that Alex mentioned right now on having a framework so you can assess whether to continue or sunset a project or an idea, it's the Innovation Project Scorecard that you can find on his website, strategizer.com. If you Google that, you will find the resource right away. Alex, we have come to the end of our hour together, and I want to thank you for this very engaging, very insightful conversation that speaks about what is happening in the world right now, how to react to all the circumstances of COVID and the changes when expected, when unexpected, and mostly how to prepare for the unexpected and for innovation. And I really want to thank you, our All Access Tribe, for joining us live, for being so active with your questions in the chat, for being so supportive of Alex's work and of each other when you come live. And with this being said, I will close also in Jason's name, who could not join us back right now. And Alex, once again, thank you so much for providing such an engaging dialogue and conversation with us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks a lot. Once again, everybody, thanks for tuning in to Superhumans at Work. I'm very grateful for all of you who tune in on a regular basis, listening to these amazing interviews with these guests that I get to find. Now, if you're subscribed to the show, definitely leave us a review if you can and share it with friends so that we can spread the message and get more people to be able to learn of these fantastic ideas that they can bring in their everyday life. And these episodes, of course, are brought to you by Mindvalley. When you go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman, you get to discover the transformational education that we get to deliver where we bring the best technology, the best teachers, and ensure that it teaches you what leads to a truly incredible life. Thanks again for tuning in and watching the show. And until next time, stay superhuman. My name is Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mindvalley podcast.